coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. There's nothing wrong in the structure of a diabetic person in the, inside of their cell. It's the fact that they're uh, oversupplying one type of the macronutrient because we can only oxidize glucose or fats. Even protein, before it gets oxidized, needs to get converted to glucose. So really, the two macronutrients are fatty acids and glucose. So by oversupplying one of the micronutrients, whether through diet, because initially it has to start with that, right? But eventually when you accumulate more fat and then you have higher than level baseline lipolysis, then you're crowding out the glucose from the metabolic machinery and it cannot get metabolized. And that's what really, that's what presents because this elevated glucose, since it cannot get metabolized, it results in higher than uh, higher amounts of insulin. And that's type of diabetes, basically. Uh, you're getting hyperinsulinemia, hyper hyper glycemia and hyperlipidemia. And these three together, um, I think depending on how high your glucose is, can actually officially define type 2 diabetes. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed independent health researcher, Georgie Dinkoff. We discussed the bioenergetic viewpoint, along with true causes of insulin resistance, problems with stress and fasting, fat versus glucose oxidation, advantages of taking niacinamide, vitamin E, and aspirin, and certain markers to check for optimal health. Really enjoyed my interview with Georgie. He has a ton of great knowledge, and I know you will enjoy this interview. So thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right, welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have Georgie Dinkoff on the show. Welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for coming on. I'm a big fan. I've uh, listened to quite a bit of your interviews um, all over. You've been on a lot of podcasts. I'm, I'm assuming you enjoy that. Yeah, I've been, uh, you know, used to be only with the one with Danny Roddy, but uh, over the last year or so, I started getting... Uh, a lot, of, a lot of other invitations. I, I enjoy it, but um, for better or worse, I have a day job. So yeah. that the whole thing with the biohacking is actually my hobby, which right. is probably why I enjoy that more. But uh, my day <laughs> job in the IT sector demands that I be at the customer side uh, most days of the week. So I'll probably not be able to do as many as I podcast as I used to. Uh, but that's, that's fine. You know, I, I put the message out there. And if people want to get in touch with me, they can follow my blog and, and you know, um, Learn more. Yeah, maybe tell people a little bit about yourself, your background. I know, um, obviously, health researcher and and I'm, your day jobs in IT. But w what's your yeah. true passion and what have you been studying for the last whatever 10, 20 years? Yeah, now? more. I mean, basically, when I came out of college, uh, two thousand two, that was just right after actually during the dot com crash. So my degree was in computer science. That's probably the worst thing you could have graduated with <laughs> at the time. Nobody wanted to touch people <laughs> with a proverbial ten foot pole. Everybody was doing finance, economics, whatnot. Um, so I desperately needed a job because I'm originally from Bulgaria. And uh, after you graduate here, because I came from school, I, I was on a student visa. If you don't find a job after you graduate, you have to go back. So I just had to find something. And then I found a, a job as a programmer uh, for a biochemical, biomedical outfit called the National Biomedical Research Foundation, which is based out of Georgetown University, right on the campus. That's my alma mater, too. So it was perfect. You know, right out of college, could stay on campus, keep working. But the problem is it was just me and one or two other people that were doing IT. The rest were biochemists, doctors, neurologists, geneticists, et cetera. So I felt kind of out of place. Um, and the other two IT guys, they didn't want to have anything to do, to do with the 
with the people they were serving, they were programming for, they just did their job and left. But, um, you know, I wanted to learn more. So I kept asking, okay, what can I do? You know, I, I kind of want to participate. When you guys go out of happy hour, you talk about these things that sound very interesting, but I don't understand any of them. They said, and the response was, well, if if that's you, if, if you're doing this out of passion, in other words, you just want to get the knowledge, you don't need to go to school for that. Even back in 2002, pretty much everything was already back. It was already online. You can get the knowledge more or less for free. Right. So just, you know, they gave me a book on intro book on biochemistry, intro book on physiology and intro book on endocrinology. I said, read these three uh, and then we can talk. So I read those three <laughs> and then started going through the lectures and presentations and whatnot. And uh, after about three years, so I worked for that outfit between 2000 and 2005. But after about three years, it kind of clicked. So basically I was able to at least understand what they're talking about. Um, and I had no idea what to do with this knowledge at the time. It was just interesting. Well, I can't explain it. Just like Steve Jobs used to say, like, uh, you have to, um, you know, life can only be understood backwards. Unfortunately, it has to be lived forwards. So you just have to trust at the time that whatever you're doing, it may have some purpose later on in life. That's turned out to, to, to do has such a purpose for me. Um, and then I kept studying and learning and reading PubMed because the people that I was working with, they said, look, after you acquire the basic knowledge, after that, it's so all self-education. I mean, we are supposed to know that we're doing it. We're supposed to be reading all these journals. We're going to all these conferences. That's how you learn new stuff. And, of course, doing your own experiments. Unfortunately, you won't be able to do that because you don't have the degrees. So you're not going to get money from the government. And the only people who can do research are either independently wealthy, like maybe Bill Gates. I hate to mention that name, but, you know, maybe like somebody like him because he can pour a lot of money into his own ideas. Or the government gives you grants. But the government is not going to give you grants unless you have the degrees. So you're stuck with the knowledge part. And I... Stuck with the knowledge part. Um, and then uh, around 2008, 2009, I was probably one of the first people that got into, started doing the low-carb slash paleo kind of diet. Uh, it was just actually starting to become a hot thing in the research circles. Like the general public hadn't even heard about it. I mean, of course, they know about the Atkins diet and whatnot, but it's not exactly like a, a paleo diet. Um, so I started doing the paleo, the, the paleo, paleo diet, went to really, really extremely low-carb. Um, and because I was an athlete in college, I wanted to stay in shape. So after college, I kept, you know, the the athletic activity. I mm -hmm. was a rower in college, but after after that, I didn't have access to both. So I stick to running. So similarly, um, endurance sport. Um, and uh, that that was like middle of 2008. By the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, I was in you know trouble. Basically, I couldn't sleep. I had headaches. I had these weird neurological symptoms. I went to the doctor. He said. Um, Sounds like MS to me. So let's, we're going to multiple sclerosis. Let's send you for some MRIs. Um, and then the MRIs came back clean. And the doctor said, I don't know what to tell you. You know, just kept like shrugging his shoulder. Like, uh, it sounds like MS, but apparently it's not. Because I don't know of a case where a person with MS doesn't have lesions on their in their spine or brain. So you were uh, so doing, said, you, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you were doing low carb for a, a couple of years by then. At yeah, uh, yeah, about two years and yeah. also exhaustive exercise combined. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then basically keeps uh, things kept deteriorating until about the end of 2009. Uh, one night I just woke up uh, in the middle of the night like in complete terror. And it took me about five minutes to realize where I was. So it was completely out of it. So I said, oh, that's definitely not a good idea. So I went back to the doctor. He said, I don't know what to tell you. It it sounds like it's something neurological. You can have like a, a you know chronic reactivation of a viral infection, maybe herpes or something, um, you know. But uh, there's nothing I can do at this point except monitor you as you continue deteriorating, and eventually you're gonna end up in the hospital. 
And the people in the ER are usually really good at, you know, diagnosing you. So they're going to find out what it is. Uh, but for now, I cannot tell you to go to the ER because you don't seem critical. Um, so, you know, I was one day and I mean, about a week later, I was, I don't know how, why I was searching for it, but back in Bulgaria, aspirin is a big thing. It's like everybody's taking aspirin for anything you can imagine. So I was looking for uh, Googling for aspirin and something about brain symptoms. And then boom, Ray Pete's article pops up. He has an article on aspirin and brain and cancer. So I read that article and just from the first paragraph, something clicked. I thought like, damn, <laughs> this guy <laughs> speaks my language. It, wow. it just makes perfect sense. Um, and then we immediately ran to the fridge. Uh, luckily, I had like a, an old, like a half pint of orange juice there um, and just chugged it. And within like five minutes, felt normal. I wouldn't say I was okay. I mean, yeah. it was back to previous, but I felt normal. Um, and after that, basically, I decided to that uh, it, the combination of low carbing with exhaustive exercise, it's not a good idea, at least for me. Right. Subsequently, found studies that show that if you really do that for a prolonged period of time, you're going to upregulate the enzymes that produce cortisol to, the, to such a point that if you stop doing these things, your cortisol will not go back to baseline. And we know that elevated cortisol, it can wreak absolute havoc on the body. I had all the symptoms of hypercortisolemia, puffy face, you know, large, basically thin extremities, central obesity, confirmed on blood tests. And some on some blood tests, my, my blood cortisol was two times higher than the upper limit. Um, the doctor was like, ah, probably chronic stress. I'm like, well, what about Cushing syndrome? No, no, no. It has to be higher than that for Cushing syndrome. Um, so it's really basically, it, it, it shows you two things. Number one, you can be in a really bad endocrinological state and unless it meets the definition of a pathology, the doctor is going to ignore you. Despite the fact that it's known that even mild elevations of cortisol can you know cause mental health disease. Like people with depression, for example, have uh, elevated cortisol, which is also non-suppressible when they're given the so-called dexamethasone suppression test. Um, but my doctor didn't see anything about this. I, I don't think I was depressed at the time. I was more, I was, was more of an anxiety situation, but cortisol can cause that too. Um, long story short, as I kind of stopped doing the exhaustive exercise and rebalanced my diet, cortisol came back in range, and over time, the symptoms subsided. Um, am I back 100% to what I used to be before? Uh, probably not because I'm older now, but it, but I do feel, to, I mean, I, I can do the same things that I used to do, be able to do before I got into the situation. So I, I consider myself more or less recovered and, and a lesson well learned. Yeah. And uh, perhaps for the audience, maybe just give a brief synopsis of, you know, the bioenergetic viewpoint. I know I've had Danny Roddy on and Jay, and so they've heard it a little bit, but just a brief synopsis of of, of what that is, and and uh, I know that's might be a mouthful, but is 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 as succinct as you can. Uh, I I think I have a good analogy. So the way medicine treats your body is like a car. Um, so basically, the car is the structure of the, this is your body, right? And 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 the 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 energy that your body produces from food is like the fuel in the in the gas tank. So medicine says, I don't care what kind of fuel you put in the gas tank, as long as the car can burn it. The car will keep going and it will go just as fine, you know, with minor differences maybe, but like it will go just as well. Um, and it, and if you put bad fuel into your car, it's not going to break your windshield. It's not going to give you a flat tire. It's not going to break your engine, right? Um, that analogy may work for the car, but definitely does not work for the body. It turns out that the, the uh, amount of energy produced and the efficiency, because there are several different ways to produce energy in the body, um, in the efficiency with, the, with which the energy is being produced is absolutely vital to everything that the body does and also the way the body is structurally. So in other words, if I put the bad type of fuel into the car or I force the car to uh, burn the fuel in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a manner that's not very healthy, then my car will start breaking down. 
actually structurally, initially functionally, the guy will start, will start sputtering. I will not be running as fast as you know as normally would, and literally running <laughs> to try mm-hmm. to run. But over time, if you continue insisting on doing the exact same things, which is usually through stress, uh, the car will start literally breaking down. And we're seeing that in a lot of in a lot of people that are trying to adopt the same lifestyle as I did. I'm not I'm not the only one unique. And there's plenty of evidence showing that the analogy in the the, the car analogy that medicine uses currently for your body does not is really is not is incomplete. Uh, and that's probably why medicine is is not that good at, at curing things because if you go to a doctor with a problem, first they'll look at your structure. I mean, they'll, they'll run it through a battery of tests, imaging studies, whatnot. If nothing is wrong structurally, then they'll declare that there's a functional problem and then that's separate. There's nothing they can do about that. They may send you to a so-called functional specialist doctor, right? But but to them, you're basically, you're okay. Maybe it's all in your head. But the bioenergetic use says like structure and function cannot be separated. If you have a functional problem currently, and this extends through time, it's going to eventually become a structural problem. If you have a structural problem, it will result in a functional problem because let's say if you have like a, like a you know, uh, uh, under-regulated or upregulated enzyme somewhere along the chain of the production of energy, clearly you will not be producing energy as you're supposed to. And this lack of energy, or at least producing it through uh, suboptimal means, is going to result in a structural problem. So energy is the functional part. And body structure, basically, is the structural part. That's how even medicine views things, but they think these things are separate. One does not affect the other, except the structure affects the function, but not the other way around. And if they check your structure, you're fine. Then there may be a functional problem, but they're saying, we don't know what's causing it. It's not structure. It's not our specialty. Go away or come back when you're feeling worse or go see a functional medicine doctor. The biogenic view says you have to worry about energy at every step of the cycle. Everything is affected by energy. We are energy, right? Ultimately, even through Einstein's formula, matter is nothing but concentrated energy. It can, be, it can interconvert. Um, and it, really, at the very end of it, it's all energy. It's energy flowing through a system, which creates structure. Um, and if the energy doesn't flow as, as intensely as it's supposed to or flows through like uh, suboptimal channels, then you're going to get crooked structure and in the case of the human body, pathological situations, uh, including structural ones, such as organ failures, organ disease, right? Alzheimer's disease, things that medicine things are structural and potentially caused by genetic issues. But bioenergetic view says for hundred years, we've been searching for all of these ge- uh, disease causing genes. Believe me, trillions of dollars have been thrown into this, trying to find a gene that causes disease because it's so profitable. If a company finds a, a gene that causes disease, um, you know, they can develop a drug around it, right? Maybe activate it or silence it, depending on how exactly what the gene does, right? Um, and the only thing that we have close to that is the BRCA genes. But the BRCA genes, despite the fact that medicine tells you they're kind of, they will almost guarantee that a woman will get breast cancer if she expresses those BRCA genes. Uh, it turns out that even that claim is not true. Now there, there, there have been studies on multiple women who had the BRCA genes, did not get the breast cut off, right? Because that's usually the treatment. If you get the, if you have the BRCA gene, they'll say you will get breast cancer at some point in your lifetime. You have to cut off the breast now to prevent this from happening. Turns out, double whammy. Not only that cutting the breast off does not prevent you from getting cancer, it can develop even without the uh, presence of the mammary gland, uh, but also... Um, just having that BRCA gene does not guarantee that you're going to get the cancer later on. So it turns out that a genetic idea, which is really the structural idea causing the functional problems always, 100% of the time, is not true. And the bioenergetic view says it's actually, it probably all starts with a functional problem, which is fairly benign initially, by saying like you're stressed. Whenever you're stressed, 
um, you know, this 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 extensive apparatus that converts energy to uh, food to energy gets gets sort of like a you know like a like a stick in the wheel. It starts to to uh, work less efficiently, and you still produce the energy, but through other means that are not as beneficial for you. And if this extends throughout time, you essentially the body adapts, and you send a signal to the body that something's off, and the body will say, "Well, uh, if that's the way, the only way I can produce energy, I'm going to stick with it, right? Until you." Until something in the environment shows me the way back to the optimal situation, and I can go back to producing the energy the way I want to. Um, and the biology review says every disease that we know of, whether it's acute or chronic, ultimately stems from this, um, you know, initially benign, looking benign, um, you know, uh, interference with the so-called process of oxidative phosphorylation, which is fully oxidizing, primarily glucose, uh, to carbon dioxide and water, uh, and ATP. Uh, if if you interfere with that process in any any of the steps, and if you do this for long enough, you're eventually going to get a problem. Um, several Nobel laureates actually uh, stated this openly uh, in regards to cancer. Otto Warburg, uh, a Nobel Prize winner, and and uh, you know the, he gave his name to the infamous so-called Warburg effect. Um, he was of the opinion that cancer is a metabolic disease. A metabolic disease is just another name for a functional disease. In other words, for a bioenergetic disease, you're Cancer develops when something in the body interferes with the production of energy, and cancer is like a desperate attempt to correct that. But because the energy that's being produced in the body is not produced in a proper manner, cancer cannot differentiate back into normal tissue. So cancer is not an attempt to kill you. Cancer is an attempt to repair a problem under very suboptimal circumstances. And Otto Warburg's was up until he died, was of the opinion that if you can restore, if you can remove this oxidative phosphorylation defect, as he called it, um, then, then you should be able to cure cancer. He thought that there's something in the cell that goes wrong that basically causes this metabolic deficiency to occur. Um, modern medicine took this and said, oh, of course there is. It's genetic mutations. As we're aging, as we're living longer, there's a higher chance of a cancerous mutations happening somewhere. And once the mutation develops, there's no correcting it. It's irreversible. You just have to kill the cancer cell. Otto Warburg never bought into that. He always thought that that it will be possible, it should be possible for cancer cells to revert back to normal. And to his credit, there are published cases many times of so-called spontaneous regression of cancer. Nobody knows how it happens and why it happens, but it is known, proven, that cancer cells can go back to normal. How and why, medicine doesn't like to speak about now, it. They like to... <laughs> <laughs> now, Georgie, I got to interrupt you here. I've listened to a lot of podcasts you have a ton of information. You talk really fast. So I'm going to, if I try to slow you down. Oh, don't... sure. Okay. No, no, no problem. I apologize. <laughs> not, not everyone can retain like you can retain. I don't know how you do it, but uh, either way. Um, okay. So um, let's, let's touch a little bit on like insulin resistance. Um, okay. I mean, I've had, you know, Dr. Ben Beekman uh, and I've had, you know, Jason Fung, um, and a lot of times insulin is sort of the demonized, um, high chronic insulin, um, is sort of the, the scapegoat in all of this. What, what would you say the true cause of insulin resistance is? Oh, I would say accumulation of fat and then, uh, higher than baseline lipolysis. So, but both need to be present at the same time. Uh, there, I think there's, um, I, I'm breaking on the, there's like a special tribe in the Caribbean, uh, but actually there's a subgroup of people living in the Caribbean islands. They're extremely obese but they never developed diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And for a long time, uh, the thought was that, of course, the magical gene is there. They're somehow protected by nature. They have this gene that's protected because these people should have type 2 diabetes. They're all obese to the level where this should be causing insulin resistance and worse, yet they don't. 
And when they finally did some measurements, of, they've been doing measurements for a long time, but because they were looking for genes, they didn't look into, they didn't pay attention to the real simple stuff, which usually turns out to be correct. They noticed that they have a much lower level of so-called free fatty acids in the blood. And it's the free fatty, free fatty acids in the blood that actually compete with glucose for oxidation through the so-called Rendo cycle. And whenever, whenever you have over a relative overabundance of fatty acids versus the glucose, then the body will oxidize the fatty acids except uh, uh, other than the glucose. And this glucose basically starts to accumulate and there are only a couple of things that can happen with it. One, uh, because it blood glucose levels are elevated, insulin rises because insulin says, oh my God, high blood glucose, I need to lower it. So insulin rises, right? Um, but, but because the glucose cannot be metabolized, then basically the other two things that can happen is um, it gets wasted into lactic acid because the, uh, the so-called path of glucose oxidation is blocked or at least inhibited by the high oxidation of fats, number one. Number two, it can get converted to fats through the process of fatty acid synthase, which insulin activates. So really that's that's what happens. When you have an overabundance of fat in your tissues and also in your bloodstream critically, because it needs to be distributed in, uh, in order to affect the entire body, then whatever glucose you consume, it's not going to get properly metabolized. So it'll get converted instead into lactic acid uh, and fat. And this is actually a very common thing among people with type 2 diabetes. If you look in, if you take a you know um, a blood sample, you will see that they have higher than the normal levels of lactic acid. They have they have they have higher levels of triglycerides, which is what happens when you overconsume sugar that cannot be metabolized properly, right? Um, and they also have higher levels of free fatty acids in the blood. Uh, there is a drug which is a derivative of vitamin B3. It's called ACIPIMOX, um, A C I P I M O X. Um, and basically, it works just the same way as vitamin B3. And what this drug does is lowers excessive lipolysis in the body. What is what lipolysis? Shredding of the fatty tissue to supply fatty acids to all the peripheral organs to metabolize for energy, right? So this means that if you uh, lower lipolysis, the levels of free fatty acids in the blood will decline. Uh, and it, it's been shown multiple times that this drug given to diabetics or even normal people drastically lowers the levels of their so-called hyperlipidemia, high levels of free fatty acids, high levels of triglycerides, high levels of LDL and even HDL, right? And also lowers the blood glucose levels. So we, I think to me, this is the most direct evidence that there's nothing wrong in the structure of a diabetic person in the, inside of the cell. It's the fact that they're uh, oversupplying one type of the macronutrient because we can only oxidize glucose or fats. Even protein, before it gets oxidized, needs to get converted to glucose. So really the two macronutrients are fatty acids and glucose. So by oversupplying one of the micronutrients, whether through diet, because initially it has to start with that, right? But eventually when you accumulate more fat and then you have higher than level baseline lipolysis, then you're crowding out the glucose from the metabolic machinery and it cannot get metabolized. And that's what really, that's what presents because this elevated glucose, since it cannot get metabolized, it results in higher than uh, higher amounts of insulin. And that's type of diabetes basically. Uh, you're getting hyperinsulinemia, hyper hyperglycemia, and hyperlipidemia. And these three together, um, I think, depending on how high your glucose is, can actually officially define type 2 diabetes. Now, if this problem gets really extreme, if you really, really oversupply fatty acids, then you can get into something called diabetic ketoacidosis, uh, for which the treatment it can be lethal. I think it's like 20% lethality unless you need to treat it. Uh, and by the way, it's always accompanied with also lactic acidosis, type type B, I think it's called type B lactic acidosis, also seen in cancer patients, which kind of 
gives you a bit of the, the, the suggestions a parallel between type 2 diabetes and cancer. We can talk about this later. But anyway, so when, it, when these people go to the hospital, what is the treatment for them? Very high doses of intravenous insulin. Why? Because insulin also suppresses lipolysis. Um, and But to answer your question, how these, these people get to that point, they accumulated a lot of fat. And through even minor stress, obese people tend to shred a lot of fat into the bloodstream because they have an excess of it. And as long as this is the case, then basically they will have a problem with metabolizing glucose, which is why one of the protocols for curing type 2 diabetes is you put people on a really extended fast diet. They get they lose all of the excess fatty stores. And basically after that, these people are cured. Unfortunately, when you put people through extremely growing fast, it also tends to lower their baseline metabolic rate. So once they stop the fast, even though they're cured of the type 2 diabetes, then basically if they go back to their normal diet of what they used to eat before, even less, you know, let's say half than that, they will pack up the pounds again because now their metabolic rate is lower. So the key is, can we do something to lose the excess fat without lowering the metabolic rate? And the answer is yes. In, in fact, elite athletes almost never fast. They use drugs such as dinitrophenol. A drug that dramatically raises the metabolic rate, unfortunately, can kill you if you're not careful because it can cause overheating and you know kill kill the brain through that. Uh, or steroids, uh, also known as anabolic androgenic steroids, but it, at their core, if you look at what these steroids do, they're basically lowering lipolysis, blocking the effects of excessive cortisol and estrogen, and through that, over time, they allow you basically to, and they also raise your metabolic rate. They, they increase the conversion of the thyroid prohormone T4 into T3. So they're kind of raising your, meta your metabolic rate without you having to do the exercise, which is really what exercise does. You're doing exercise to temporarily raise the metabolic rate and burn more calories than you would. Unfortunately, when it's done through stress, especially if it's combined with fasting, as I found out myself, you get into a situation where the metabolic rate drastically declines. And when you stop this, what you're doing, even if you lost all of the excess weight, then you have to stay at a very, very uh, much lower baseline level of calories. Otherwise, you're going to pack, pack the pounds up on again and it may actually be a worse situation than before. Great example is the show Biggest Loser. Uh, these people that, are, that basically went on their way, the really ridiculous amount, 300, 400 pounds, they got put through this grueling diet and exercise. They lost, many of them lost their, you know, all their weight. They felt great. But as soon as they quit the show, went back to their normal lifestyle, a lot of them actually went on so-called healthy diets, but they were eating more calories than the metabolic rate was actually accommodating at the time. And guess what? Within six months, they were right back to where six to 12 months. Not only that, they started overshooting their weight because now even at the lower amount of calories they're eating with their lower metabolic rate, they actually could not uh, burn even those uh, fewer calories that they're now eating. All right. So the key is, um, so your your main thought around cause of insulin resistance, chronic stress and high yes. poof and high high fat, high poof. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Because the high fat is when you get it into your tissues, if it stays in your tissues, it's Kind of okay, right? If it's poofy, it's a problem. It's a problem because even in your in your fatty tissues, it's under it can get, get under, under attack by the so-called reactive oxygen species that are always present because of met metabolism. And by the way, poofy itself, when it's get metabolized, can actually block the metabolic pathways and cause a lot of these. So it's a self-feeding cycle of creating reactive oxygen species. Unfortunately, these reactive oxygen species can actually attack the the poofy molecule and peroxidize it and create a number of toxic aldehydes. Uh, many of which are directly carcinogenic. So if you're going to be, so usually the, the we get, and by the way, a lot of them are now directly implicated in diabetes and insulin resistance and cancer and whatnot. 
So again, eating sub suboptimal diet, which means high in PUFA, and also, uh, let's say if you're eating high high fat diet but not in PUFA, if this fat stays in your in your fatty tissues, you're you're okay. But even a minor stress raises your cortisol and adrenaline and makes this fat get into the bloodstream. And as long as fat outcompetes the glucose as the metabolic fuel, then you will not be able to metabolize the glucose. You will be insulin resistant. Okay. Um, I can What's give a great example. Hibernating yeah. bears. Uh, they eat tremendously to pack up on the pounds before they go into hibernation. Um, and then studies, they, they, do, they did blood tests. The bears were perfectly healthy, de despite being actually really what they would consider overweight. I don't know what's an overweight for a bear, but I guess weighing 2,000 pounds is probably, and they, they do look like, <laughs> like you know, one big chunkus. So mm -hmm. after these bears go into, into hibernation, uh, researchers would get into their den and periodically withdraw blood and notice that while the bear is in hibernation, because the bear is not eating anything, it's actually metabolizing the fat that is the fattest in the fatty tissue. The bears met all the requirements for type 2 diabetes. They had higher ketone levels, higher blood glucose, higher insulin, higher free fatty acids, everything, you name it. And then this continued while the bear was hibernating. You notice the bear was fasting, so he wasn't actually wasn't stressed. Imagine how much worse it would be if he was stressed. Maybe that's why they sleep, because to you know to basically limit the the damage that has already been done by the fasting. And when they woke up and started refeeding, all of these parameters went down. And despite the bear started gaining weight, that should become healthier. So it's really the combination of bad diet and bad fats, specifically combined with stress, that's driving not just diabetes. Really, as I mentioned. Um, you know, the cancer patients going into, when they go into the hospital, they have hyper, high ketone bodies, high ammonia, high glucose, you know, uh, high lactic acid. So it sounds like an extreme case of diabetes. And in fact, untreated diabetes patients waste in the exact same way as untreated cancer patients through the process known as cachexia. So what would you say? I mean, you have like, like I mentioned, let's just say Dr. Jason Fung has clinics where people are fasting, they're diabetic mm -hmm. and they're fasting and they're, they are improving. Uh, but Obviously, your to your point, they're they're wrecking their metabolisms if they go back to like a normal eating schedule. Um, what would you say would what would be your way of sort of solving that puzzle? Um, I know you you know obviously avoiding chronic stress and and pufas and things yeah. like that. Um, is it just like healing the gut, becoming better at glucose metabolism? Like what what would your what would your clinic be like? If, you know, not a fasting clinic. What would it be? <laughs> um, so if, if, uh, for people that are in particularly uh, fragile health, because some people can tolerate the fasting and do just fine. Um, but for people that are, let's say I would, I would measure the steroids. If their DHEA, the, for, for both sexes, if their levels of DHEA, which is the adrenal hormone are, are good and they're up at 25% of, of the normal range, then I think these people can, can, can withstand a decent fast. Um, I wouldn't do a full fast though. I would do probably at, at most intermittent fasting. And while they're fasting, I will take plenty of vitamin E because since most of the uh, fat stored in the tissues will be PUFA, when that gets released, all you know, all hell breaks loose because of, of the peroxidized uh, byproducts of this PUFA. And also it's normal metabolism. Uh, and some of its metabolites, such as prostaglandins and leukotriase, right? The vitamin E can quench most of these side effects. So take some vitamin E, right? Um, take some niacinamide, which actually increases the levels of the cofactor NAD+. And that is vital for metabolizing both fats and glucose. Is niacinamide, um, is that vitamin B3? Yes, but the, okay. there's several forms, right? There's okay. niacin, which is the flush version. I don't recommend that because the flushing is caused by histamine and serotonin. You don't want those released into the bloodstream um, because it's a sign of, it, it can cause an inflammatory reaction. Uh, okay. Niacin gets these things out of the platelets. 
So it makes the platelets release the histamine and serotonin, and that's not a good thing. In fact, some very beneficial drugs are doing the exact opposite, stimulating the uptake of serotonin and histamine into the platelets, and by this actually curing depression. So not niacin, but niacinamide. Okay. Um, and um, there's another one recently over the last couple of years. It's a commercial product. One company is pushing. It's called nicotinamide riboside. Oh. Uh, there's a company called Chromadex that's running clinical trials with it. And up until last week, there was also another version called nicotinamide mononucleotide. However, a company just like Chromadex petitioned the FDA to ban nicotinamide mononucleotide because they claim it's a it's an, a new investigative investigationary drug. And FDA concurred. And as of yesterday, Amazon has basically yanked all nicotinamide mononucleotide products from its website. And I think the FDA started to send letters to people saying and saying, you can't sell this anymore over the counter. I know it's a vitamin, but we think it's a drug. So we're stuck now with niacinamide or nicotinamide riboside. So three, 300 to 500 milligrams daily, I think is, a, is plenty. Or niacinamide. That. So so your yeah. clinic, you, you, you take, you know, for an individual, they can do some fasting, just intermittent, right? Like, what would you say, 12 to 16 hours, something like that? If I think that's fine. That's yeah. fine if, if, if that's the healthy individual, uh, right? So right. so, so for those, and I'll be taking those things to prevent the, the damage that the circulating fat will be causing. So you would take vitamin E, niacinamide. Okay. And aspirin. And aspirin, okay. Those three, I think, uh, to me, will be the, the triad that should negate most of the the bad side effects of the of the polyunsaturated fats. Um, maybe taking like I don't know a spoon of coconut oil. I know it's it, it kind of breaks the idea of fasting, but it's not that many calories. Uh, it's just a, it's several studies have demonstrated that it's the ratio of saturated fat to polyunsaturated fat in the blood that is also very important. So just by raising it a little bit by consuming maybe like a teaspoon of coconut oil two, three times a day, which should be at most 200 calories. It's not that much, right? Uh, that should also greatly mitigate the damage. Now, for people that are fragile, and I do have a great study for that, people with Cushing disease, as everybody knows. When you, that so when you say fragile, I mean like diabetic or? Yes, diabetic already. Or like if you look, and by the like, way, these are not mutually exclusive. If you look at their endocrine profile, these people have a very low level of DHEA. Now, it's the cortisol to DHEA ratio, and it should be in favor of DHEA. Um, that actually determines, it's, it's, it has emerged as the most reliable morbidity and mortality predictor of, for any age and for for either one of the two genders. Do you know what the ratio should be, cortisol to DHEA? Do you have an idea? Or... Uh, depends whether it's in blood or in uh, hair and nails, um, okay. like depending where you measure. But um, blood? It should what about be, blood? Uh, in blood, it should be, uh, let's see, cortisol... Um, Cortisol to DHEA should be no more than 0.5. In other words, DHEA should outrank cortisol in a factor of at least two to one. Okay. Um, and if that's not the case, and it's usually seen on blood tests, such as the cortisol being in the upper limit of the normal range, and God forbid above, and DHEA below, or, or at like at the bottom 20%, 20% or below. By the way, DHEA, this just this just these two hormones, just this ratio, can actually di reliably diagnose diabetes. Unfortunately, it's it's, it's called non-specific. In other words, if the cortisol to DHEA ratio is is high, you can have diabetes, you can have cardiovascular disease, you can have cancer, Alzheimer's, etc. But it's a very good ratio of your vitality, right? So if that ratio is less than optimal, then I will do um, I don't want to call it chemotherapy, but I would actually use drugs instead of putting people through a grueling regimen because they are likely to get worse. In other words, when you fast, that ratio of cortisol to DHEA is going to get skewed even further into, into favor, quote-unquote, of cortisol. 
Uh, and that can really wreak havoc on people's so, bodies. So, so if someone's them. fragile or, you know, like you said, yeah. maybe diabetic and they have not a good ratio of cortisol to DHEA, obviously you're not going to fast them because that'll nope. just cause stress nope. um, and raise, raise cortisol, right? So um, would it be like healing the gut, um, you know, perhaps like endotoxins or, or things like that? Yes, and also, like I said, since I, meant, since I mentioned using the drugs, there's several clinical trials right now with drugs that are inhibiting the enzyme that synthesizes cortisol. Oh, this in, enzyme is 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase type 1. 11-BHSD1 is the abbreviation. Look it up, 11-beta-HSD1 and then in, on Google, and then space, and then type diabetes or type obesity or type metabolic syndrome, whatever you can come up with in terms of like having the range metabolism or weight, 11 beta HSB1 HSD1 inhibitor followed by the keyword you will find plenty of studies including clinical trials with humans showing very good results which shows you that the cortisol is actually contributing to these to these uh, to this pathology uh, another study with people that had Cushing disease who have the exact same profile as type 2 diabetics because cortisol results in basically in uh, higher lipolysis higher storage of fat also uh, blocks the, the metabolism of glucose, blocks the synthesis of DHEA. In other words, these people, when you look at them phenotypically, they're indistinguishable from a type 2 diabetic. Central obesity, uh, low muscle mass, very, very lean extremities, right? And then this study found, and in, in people like that, because they're, uh, this is my example of fragile people, they don't tell them to fast. You don't tell a person with Cushing disease to fast because cortisol will go through even more to the roof, right? So what do they do? Well, they gave them, Typically, they do surgery and remove the tumor that's causing the overproduction of cortisol. I forgot to say the Cushing disease is a disease of, caused by a tumor that produces cortisol. Um, so for people that don't want the surgery or are not a good candidate for whatever reason, maybe it's too risky, maybe the tumor is too large and whatnot. The only other option really is you give them a, a drug that blocks cortisol at the receptor level, and that drug is known as RU486. Now, it's in the, in the, in the popular culture, it's known as the abortion pill, but actually it was designed because it, it, it can do that. But it was designed as a cortisol blocker. The French company Sanofi developed it in the 80s um, as basically uh, as a cortisol blocker to treat Cushing disease. But at the time, because Cushing disease is rare, it's like a thing, it's like one in 100,000 cases. The marketing department went went to the to the drug developers and said, why did you why did you develop this? What are you going to do with this? Okay, they, we can't sell, we're going to sell 10 pills a year. That's nothing. What else can you do? Well, you can also block the progesterone receptor. Ah, perfect. You block the progesterone receptor, you terminate pregnancy. So then they started marketing it as the abortion pill, and it became known as the abortion pill, but it was designed and still primarily functions as a cortisol blocker. And that study with women with Cushing disease, actually really morbidly obese, the, the administration of RU486 led to complete resolution of all of the obesity and all of the blood deranged pile markers that these women had, including the cortisol. And over time, even the tumor shrank in, in some women even disappeared. But tumor aside, it basically cured their type 2 diabetes, and it led to sustained weight loss, which is really the key here, because you can probably lose weight if you put yourself on a grueling diet. That's that's not it's not a secret. The secret is keeping it off, keeping it off without actually having to maintain a grueling lifestyle. And it turns out that these women were able to lose all of their excess weight without changing anything in their lifestyle, which shows you that cortisol is at the core of creating these metabolic pathologies. So yes, for the fragile people, um, RU486, an 11-beta-HSD1 inhibitor, and if their doctor agrees, usually for males, um, testosterone replacement therapy, which has also been shown, and in fact, it used to be used back in the 50s and 60s as treatment for male obesity. 
Um, central obesity in males is one of the first um, first uh, reliable signs of impending hypogonadism. Um, and it's known that men become hypogonadal with age, but to this day, medicine refuses to acknowledge these results because in males, the cortisol to DHEA ratio is important, but also the cortisol to testosterone ratio is much more important. So if testosterone declines with age, cortisol may stay the same, but the cortisol to the testosterone ratio will rise and that directly leads to insulin resistance. Conversely, as early as the 1950s, studies demonstrated in males that testosterone injections can actually completely eliminate obesity and, to, and type 2 diabetes in males. Unfortunately, testosterone is uh, aromatizable androgen, can raise estrogen as well, which is not desirable. So there are other, there are other androgens out there, other anabolic, quote-unquote, steroids that can achieve the same. And if your doctor is willing to do it, dinitrophenol is probably... Uh, probably the most direct option. It drastically increases your metabolic rate and also heat production. Uh, and you're going to be burning off these calories without making any extra effort. Unfortunately, the so-called therapeutic index, the therapeutic profile is narrow. The means the, 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 the effective dosage and the toxic dosage are very close to each other. So you have to be under the monitoring of a doctor. I think clinics in Mexico do it. Um, you go there, you say you want to lose weight, they can put you on a, on a DMP, dinitrophenol. Banned in the United States, but many other countries, it's not banned and it's accepted as you know the pill for losing weight for the for the rich that want that, that they can afford it. What about just for you know the average individual? Um, I don't, you know, someone that's in decent shape and they're like, oh well, I you know, maybe I've done some low carb, I've done some fasting, but you know, I, I want a ways that I can sort of rev up my metabolism. And you know, still, you know, obviously, stay fit. Um, what what would be some things that you would maybe um, you know it, uh, recommend? So, protein in, uh, intake should be at least one gram per kilogram of protein uh, of body mass. Actually, ideally, lean body mass, not necessarily the total body mass. Right. Um, also, uh, salt intake should not drop below, I would say, a teaspoon a day. Um, despite all the demonizing of the salt, multiple studies have now come out and said salt intake actually has no relevance uh, for cardiovascular disease. Uh, actually, it does if you undertake it. So, so if you eat way too much salt, the body has a way to, to get rid of it. But if you're eating too little, that can actually cause serious problems through raising of something called aldosterone, which is a hormone, which is a salt-retaining hormone. So when you don't eat enough salt, the body says, oh, I need more. So even if you eat a little, I'm going to retain all of it. And the way it does this is through this hormone aldosterone, which is known to cause heart disease when it's elevated in the long run. Is so one, eating salt... It, okay, go ahead. Yeah. I was just gonna uh, say you said one teaspoon of yeah, salt. That no seems less like than, no less I was gonna say that teaspoon. seems like a little bit. I thought you would actually say more. Um, well, that's on top of what's already in the food. I'm yeah, saying like right. yeah. So so right. make sure you so eat it to eat it to taste. But if the if the if it feels bland, if the if the food feels bland and there's not enough salt in it, don't be afraid to like put a little. Okay, put a little extra to taste. Like I'm not saying you should be gulping. Uh, if you look at some of the historical intakes. Basically, the, the intake of salt before the Second World War in the United States was actually two tablespoons daily. Tablespoons, not teaspoons. Mm -hmm. That's like 12, 24, 25 to 30 grams of salt daily. And if 40% of that is sodium, you can imagine how much sodium you're being can. In fact, some of the rationing for the soldiers going to the front lines was, I think it was lard and salt and cigarettes. Um, so salt is thermogenic. Uh, that's probably why I'm, uh, you know, probably the main one the reason I'm mentioning it. So it's, if, if protein is also thermogenic, so all of these things have the have the effect of raising the metabolic rate. Um, in other words, trying to get you to burn calories without doing this through stress, which is what the exercise will do. Um, also, concentric exercise, um, lifting weights is mostly concentric, but also has a very it's a, like a, has a, 
a, a strong eccentric uh, portion as well. And, and I've heard you mention this before, and it's interesting because I'm in, you know, I'm in this space, uh, and I, I, you hear a lot about how eccentric is actually can, you know, can be beneficial to help build muscle for hypertrophy. Yes, but not for mitochondrial biogenesis. Okay. So that is correct. Right. Uh, but you know, I, I think it's people simply. I mean, like both versions are correct, but because one side does not explain that. Okay, you want to get get big muscles. That's fine. Eccentric is the way to go. But if you want to burn more calories, is basically you want my, more mitochondria per cell. And the thing that burn that creates more mitochondria per cell is basically by by uh, doing the concentric exercise, which is contracting the muscle with a load and then relaxing it without a load. So you, what does this mean? Okay, when you're doing the the biceps curls, I'm not recommending it, but just an example. Then you drop the weight on the ground, right? And you, then you pick it up. <laughs> you'll be and kicked. You'll be kicked out of the gym. Real quick. <laughs> <laughs> what about the deadlift? Don't they do that often? Like they actually they lift it up and then they drop it. Yes. Okay. Yes. So you can do that. Okay. Uh, and you know. So you don't squats. like you don't like the eccentric, per se. Because, uh, I, I would keep of, it at a ratio of at least three to one in favor of the concentric. I know it cannot be completely eliminated right, when you're doing right. weight. So you shouldn't become orthorexic in regards to your yeah. gym habits. You should yeah. just be mindful of what you're doing. But you can do some things that are mostly concentric to compensate. Let's say I you're think, doing a regular gym, yeah. right? I think most but then people you climb some stairs. Most people enjoy doing concentric more. The eccentric, okay. I, I personally think, is the most difficult. Yeah. Uh, you know, because you know, controlling it slow on the way down is not so easy. <laughs> so people don't yeah. really like to do that, anyways. So I, I uh, think that that one builds core strength. It's the control of the weight coming down, and and a lot of people need that core strength, and it's fine. Uh, it's just not necessarily good for the muscles that are doing that at the time. But if you want to do your normal weight routine, that's not a problem. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying that uh, you can add some more mostly concentric to compensate such as climbing stairs um pushing something heavy like those heavy tires that the football players push right mm -hmm. biking is concentric if you don't overdo it to the point where you actually start to burn fat because uh also swimming is mostly concentric um things like that you know basically the um so when you do climbing the stairs you climb the stairs but then people are like well what about coming down the stairs that is eccentric so what I, what i do personally i, I go to the you, metro in dc do. i know what you <laughs> the do. elevator yeah. <laughs> yeah. i heard you say that i know <laughs> so you take so that, the stairs those and bring, things. yeah take yeah. the elevator it's like when i uh i just went to, i was in israel we i climbed masada we we my, my wife and i we, we went all, all the way up and then we took the trolley back down Yep. 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 Um, okay. So, so we got plenty of things. Okay. Protein, sugar. I'm sorry. Right. So uh, protein, sodium. Salt. Right. Yeah. So uh, sugar in a ratio of, of uh, to protein of at least two to one. Probably not more initially if you're trying to lose weight. So when you say um, sugar, um, best forms uh, through like fruit or like. Um, Ideally, fruit and honey. Uh, multiple studies have shown that that if you consume honey, it does not result in hyperglycemia, even in insulin resistant people. I don't know what it does and how it does it. It's got to be something in the honey that's there. My guess is the it's the polycosinols, and there's probably some steroids in the honey that we don't yet know about. Uh, but honey seems to be perfectly fine for diabetic, even for diabetic people. Um, fruit, ripe fruit is great, and if you have to eat starches, uh, just make sure that they're well well cooked starches. And let's say potatoes, uh, at least something that I, that I would uh, go for, because they also contain keto acids, which not only have a muscle building effect because they combine with ammonia in the body to form amino acids de novo, but also have uh, like a, like an insulin sparing effect as well. So when you're consuming potatoes, even though they're pure starch and you should be raising your blood glucose levels as much as say the same amount of white rice, multiple studies have shown that potatoes that don't actually do that. 
And there's some guesses. Potatoes are high in potassium. About 80% of the insulin of the glucose disposal apparently is due to potassium, not to insulin. Uh, it's been known since the so 60s. When you cook yeah. the starches, are you cooking them in saturated fat? Yes. Is that butter okay. is great? Like coconut oil is great. Um, okay. um, you know, beef tallow is great. Um, and if you want more, uh, I've read they've been experimenting with um, uh, with an oil called moringa oil, uh, which even though it's a seed oil, is actually has almost zero percent polyunsaturated fats. Remarkable oil, moringa oil. Look it up. Okay. Um, and it's uh, you can get it refined, so it doesn't because it like all, all all seed oils. If you get it unrefined, it's got this very strong nutty taste. Um, so depends you, whether you like it or not. Do you recommend you know that let's just say that pretty healthy individual like the, the things we're talking about to eat every you know do, do you recommend if they want to do a little bit of fasting that's fine or should they be you know eating every four hours or what do, what are your thoughts on that depends on their fragility i would really have to do the i mean i would recommend doing the hormonal profile if you if your hormones okay. are okay you yeah. can handle one meal a day and then skip two i don't think that would be that much of a problem um but, but yeah. if you're basically if you're at the point where you where you're basically watching your meals and you're still gaining weight and you're doing all these things that the doctor is saying and you exercise it but you keep expanding especially if you're retaining water um, that's already a sign that cortisol and estrogen are probably much higher than, than optimal. And then stressing yourself further is not going to improve things, in my opinion. Right. Um, so so the, the fat, just as we mentioned in, uh, initially, try to avoid polyunsaturated fats as much as possible. Those are the seed oils, with the exception, notable exception, of Moringa oil. Um, and then olive oil is good. I just wouldn't overconsume it because it's about 10 to 12% polyunsaturated fat but uh, having a tablespoon you know three times a day for, with the salad is is fine i don't think it's, it's a problem and then butter be, you know beef tallow sheep fat if you if you can get it uh, do you do you have... do you eat uh like a carrot a day <laughs> i eat the carrot salad yeah shredded carrot a day is great Just what about just eating a carrot normal you, you is it, would that you have to be beneficial well. for the gut Okay. Yes, it's still beneficial. The the shredding increases its basic its surface area, so it acts like charcoal. You know, the reason charcoal is so good at absorbing is because it's got these the really really tiny particles, and if you add up their their surface area, it, it's basically apparently like the equivalent of a football field in a single capsule. So the more you shred the carrot, the more you increase its surface rate, and then when you chew it up, you usually make it into this mush, and it doesn't have as much of a surface area as the as the shredded one. Either way, whatever makes you feel, but insoluble insoluble fiber is really the key here. Um, because it it basically binds a lot of the endotoxin that is produced in your gut, and also a lot of the the root vegetables that are uh, that we're consuming. Carrot being one of them. Turnip is another very good one. Um, they well, because they did, live I'm on sorry, the. Sorry, what did you say? Which turnip. One is... Turnip. Oh, turnip. I thought you said yeah. turmeric. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Oh, turmeric is also very good. Another root. Another root thing. Um, and it, it's got this uh, actually curcumin that is in the turmeric, and the ginger oil, which is in ginger, which is also a root. Uh, these things apparently developed evolutionary to protect the root from a, a, a number of different bacteria and fungi, fungi, which we have in our gut as well. So they actually have a direct antibacterial and antifungal effect aside from their insoluble fiber effect, which is to kind of clean the gut out from the endotoxin. So really keeping the gut clean, keeping the microbiome under control, uh, keeping the endotoxin production and absorption under control, uh, and just uh, keeping bio, bowel transit uh, as short as possible uh, to the point where, you know, uh, you should be absorbing the nutrients, but anything after uh, uh, after that is basically exposing you to this now decayed food, right? Uh, so bowel transit should be, um, you should be going to the bathroom, ideally, well, at least once a day. 
What's um, yeah. there's some there's some variations on that with aging that that frequency declines, um, and there's some studies suggesting that increasing that frequency through laxatives actually has very good very good uh, effects on insulin resistance, um, on brain health, um, on um, uh, reproductive uh, system. Uh, some studies suggest good effect even for Alzheimer's disease, which shows you that whatever's happening in your gut uh, outside of digestion is probably not good for your health. So after you absorb the foods and, and you process them and get whatever you need to get out of them, they should be they should be going out of you as soon as possible. Now I've heard you talk about this with a few on a few interviews regarding muscle meats, and you want to sort of balance that out with collagen, sort of a yes. one to one ratio, uh, yep. because. Uh, Maybe perhaps because of the three amino acids that you want to sort of keep an eye on, that's what, tryptophan? Cysteine, methionine, and tryptophan. Uh, tryptophan is the only one that is directly carcinogenic. And probably one of the reasons why, if you look at tryptophan contents of various foods, that's the that's the rarest amino acid in nature. Um, not many organisms tolerate it, and that's probably why. Um, methionine uh, is a methyl donor and also directly suppressive to the thyroid um, a, a study with humans demonstrated if you drop methionine intake to two milligrams per kilogram daily, which means for a 200 pound person, just to make it easy, that's 200, that's 200 milligrams total of methionine daily. So normally we consume several grams. So this means drastically lowering methionine intake uh, reversed obesity and diabetes. It, it was a human study. Um, so plenty of methionine in the, in the muscle mix and also unfortunately plenty of methionine in many of the grains. One reason, another reason not to overdo on the grains, on the grains, so, grains, grains. So yeah. for, for someone that's having a, like I, for example, like ribeye, like mm -hmm. is, is, is there a decent amount of collagen in there or would I have to probably take something? Ribeye is fine. Filet mignon is the worst. I know it's like a lot of people. My wife, my wife likes filet. She's not going <laughs> to like to hear that. Uh, what about skirt steak? Skirt steak, I think it's really good. It's very tough, but also it's got the most amount of collagen. Uh, and ideally, actually, you know what? If you don't want to deal with any of that, burgers. Because all of the burger product pr producers, they, they try to keep the amount, ironically, of the amount of meat inside a burger to, to as low as possible. They're throwing all kinds of other stuff in there. Some well, of it doesn't sound very appetizing, but a lot of it is collagen. Right? Well, I think ground meat's a great option. First of all, it's less expensive. And we get like, yeah, we get ground meat all the time from Force of Nature, which is a really, um, they, you know, they, they put... Organ meats, and that—that that was my other thing. Is uh, you know, organ meats are the, you know, testicles, heart, um, uh, kidneys, liver, liver, kidneys. Very what good. About desiccated, what about desiccated thyroid as a supplement? Is that something oh, like I know? I know you talk about. That. Okay. I think it's great if you can get the chicken or turkey necks from the butcher that have not have had their thyroid removed. It used to be the case that it, that it was always there, but then they, then they wisened up, and now they actually some of the butchers are removing the thyroid and selling it separately to all of these companies that are selling these products. But if you go to the butcher and say, hey, listen, I need 20 chicken or turkey necks or duck necks with a thyroid still in there, and you know the butcher, he, he or she should be able to accommodate you. And it makes for great soup, very, very uh, metabolically stimulating soup, even if you drink just a cup of it. Fish head yeah. soup is another one. You can go to a, like a East Southeast Asian restaurant. They, they, they I think they love their, they do a lot of uh, fish head dishes, I don't. Some of them are fermented. I don't particularly like, but mm. but the fish head soup is is great. And actually, I can sense the thyroid because it's it's raising my temperature. Um, do you measure your temp and pulse? And yeah, like, do not every day because okay. because simply because I kind of like. I mean, I've gotten to a point where I can feel when something is is off, right? And I need to do something about it. Um, so if I feel fine in the morning, I don't feel the need to do it. 
Uh, and I think that's actually a pretty good gauge. If you're having a health problems and you start doing something about it and you eventually you start losing interest, you're probably on the right track. Because if you're not, <laughs> the problem is going to keep persisting. You will keep it into your mind. So if you get to the point where you're basically like, okay, you know, I understand, you know, with aging, we're going to have more problems, but by and large, I'm feeling fine. But then on certain mornings or certain evenings or something is going on, you have a stressful situation at work or home, you feel like you're like you're getting jittery, your your cold extremities, sign of basically stress hormones released, right? Then you need probably need to do something about it. So, but I do, I, maybe twice a week, I would measure uh, underarm temperature uh, and I measure pulse as well. And in the morning, I would like the underarm temperature to be at least 97 degrees uh, before eating uh, and the pulse to be a 75 or above. And after eating, I would like to see the pulse go above 85 and the temperature to go above 98 or 98 or above. Okay. Yeah. I talked a little bit about that with Danny. Um, and then what about, you know, thermo, I know you've talked about this thermodynamics, sort of this calories in calories out, um, model that people, you know, there's a lot of people in the, in the health industry that just talk about, Oh, if you're in a slight calorie deficit, you know, everything will work out. Um, but, is that technically going to just slower your metabolic rate? Uh, depending on, on really what you're cutting. Like if you cut protein, uh, uh, you know, in favor of, let's say, fat, and also you lower the carbs, then I think you, you will lower your metabolic rate because the, the thermogenic, basically the uh, the protein and the carbs are, are, are more thermogenic than the fat is. Uh, depends on the fat, of course. The PUFAs are the worst because they actually they directly lower your core temperature. Um, it's multiple studies have shown that hibernating animals, especially the rodents, before they go into torpor, uh, their blood levels of PUFA drastically rise. Um, and several studies have shown that it can actually induce torpor in animals if you inject them, like with a very large dose of polyunsaturated fats. The more unsaturated, quote unquote, the better for causing the torpor. And it's not a good Causing, what? causing what? I'm sorry. Torpor. Torpor. What's that? Like What's a, torpor? Uh, uh, it's basically like slumber, like what the bears go into oh, hibernation. Sleep. sleep. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. But gotcha. not a good sleep. Not like the restorative sleep. Okay. It's more like. <laughs> Coma, semi-comatose. Oh, okay. So so calories in, calories out. Like obviously you want to prioritize protein, high thermic yeah. effect, um, and carbs, and yeah. keep an eye on on fats. And if you're gonna have fats, prioritize saturated fats, obviously. Yep. Okay. And and here's the thing: the calories in cal calories in versus calories out. If you're like let's say you're overdoing the carbohydrates, several studies already came out showing in animals and now in humans. That if you if you keep the 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 fat intake at less than twenty percent, which unfortunately not many people do, then you can overindulge on carbs as much as you want, and you're probably not going to be able to put more extra weight. Uh, really, the de novo synthesis of fats from carbs only kicks in after you consume about pound of extra carbs than on top of what you're already eating, right? So it's so, but uh, but the fats is not like that. So the fats. Uh, the more fats you consume, the easier you will get fat if you over consume what you're basically capable of, of currently metabolizing. They directly contribute to your fat storage. Um, now, if you're initially on a very high PUFA diet and you accumulate a tremendous amount of PUFA, is there some benefit to eating a, a ton of saturated fat, even though you may get slightly fatter, simply because you're going to rebalance tissues a little bit? Probably. But I think in this situation, you're already so, sort of screwed up that your least the least of your worries that you'll be getting slightly a little bit heavier the much bigger issue is that all this poof that's in your body is causing you to really go rancid directly um as as it sits there in your tissues what's the best way to get the poof out 
Uh, I would say because there's always some level of baseline lipolysis by taking, even if you're taking niacinamide, vitamin E, aspirin, all of them have anti-lipolysis effects. They're actually only blocking the excessive lipolysis, the one that's stimulated by stress. At rest, because the muscles prefer to burn fat, uh, so another reason to do the concentric exercise to build muscle mass, right? And the mitochondria. Um, there's always some baseline lipolysis going on. That one is okay. And over time, basically, whatever the, so build muscle mass in order to be able to oxidize the circulating fats. And if that's not enough, then the liver is usually able to glucuronidate and or sulfate any remaining fats that the muscles cannot oxidize or the organs, and then make this more water soluble so you're going to pee them out. Uh, but if the liver is not in a very good situation, then all this extra fat that's floating around unmetabolized is going to, especially if it's PUFA, is going to actually damage the liver. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is now known to be caused by oversupply of specifically polyunsaturated fats to the liver that exceed its ability to oxidize them, number one, and two, glucuronidate and sulfate for excretion. So if you take drugs that actually, or supplements that prevent the peroxidation of these fats, something as simple as vitamin E, Two human studies just came out showing that vitamin E in doses of about 600 to 800 units daily, which is high, but not that high. I think the RDA is 400 units uh, by the FDA, was actually able to reverse both NAFLD, which is the first stage of fatty liver disease, and, and NASH, which is non-alcoholic hepatitis, which is the second stage, which is more severe. Both of these reversible by something as simple as, as vitamin E. So vitamin E, do you, you take that alongside... Um aspirin and you take do you take a vitamin d as well i take vitamin d once a week uh i take the vitamin e also once a week um, oh, just just take, once a, just once a week okay. yeah they're, they're fat soluble so if you're uh, like i said if you're not unless you're really your vitamin e needs are determined by two things your poofer intake and your stress levels if you're going to be fasting and or exercising okay. now if it's only so if you're only going to be poofer intake you don't have a very stressful lifestyle your daily needs are about uh two units per gram of poofer consumed so if you're eating, let's say, 25 grams of PUFA daily, 50 units per day, multiplied by seven, right? So 350, 400 units, one capsule of, which is what most supplements have, one capsule of vitamin E weekly should be able to handle your PUFA problems if, if they're only coming from the diet. Now, if you're consuming more and or you're exercising and or you're, you're fasting, then you may need to be doing on a, on a daily basis or take higher dosages weekly because it stores in the liver and the liver release in the circulation is needed. Um, so it really depends whatever is more convenient for you. Uh, like I said, I got into the point where uh, I kind of feel when things are not going well and I need to take measures. And if I, if I feel fine, then my regimen is either Saturday or Sunday, I take most of the supplements that I feel like I should be taking. I take pregnenolone once weekly. Aspirin. And then on a daily basis, I, on a daily basis, I take only aspirin and niacinamide. Um, one capsule aspirin and then one capsule of 250 milligrams niacinamide. Okay. Let's see what else. Um, gosh, we fit a lot. We fit a lot. Um, so main things for healing the gut and and shifting and helping. Um, I mean, that's, I think one of the things that fasting can do for some people is, um, uh, sort of give you gut relief, right? Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're producing yeah. a lot less endotoxin, like yeah. actually none. Yeah. And then re removing irritating foods, yes. um, that sort of damage the gut barrier. Right. But I think most of the, the, the stuff that people have problems with the food is after they've already compromised their gut barrier. The gut is very good at handling a lot of irritating substances. I think most people recognize that when they were younger, 
they could eat very spicy foods, really crappy foods, and it will just go right through. It will not make any much of a dent. But as they get older, those same foods are starting to create much of a problem. And the reason is, a recent study demonstrated niacinamide can reverse those effects, but a reason is in a great confirmation of the bioenergetic theory, the reason was discovered to be decline in the energy levels produced by the epithelial cells that are lying in the gut. Um, and, and it was directly triggered by NAD deficiency, which what the study was able to remediate by administering niacinamide, which is the precursor. And when, when it did that, the gut barrier was fully restored, and then basically the, all of the inflammatory biomarkers, it was an animal model, all of the inflammatory biomarkers basically went back to normal, which shows that the, your gut can handle its its problems that is it's, it's designed this way uh, if it has sufficient energy. In other words, everything comes down to sufficient resources, just like life in general. Anything life throws at you, when you're younger and energetic, it felt like it felt like an adventure. When you're older and exhausted, it felt like it feels like an irritation or directly an assault. Well, well said, well said, well said. Yeah, you know, because when I first started hearing about, uh, you know, the bioenergetic viewpoint, as far as, you know, um, stress, you know, these um, how's, uh, compounding stressors that can wreak havoc on your body and, you know, lower thyroid and things like that. Yeah. I was, you know, I'm obviously understanding it more. And like for myself, I'm not a very stressed person. Uh, you know, I don't have high PUFAs. Uh, you know, I control what I eat and, and, and things. I feel like, you know, it depends a little bit on the individual. Some people can handle certain stressors. Like, I mean, I yeah. can, I can do a cold plunge for a minute and be fine, you know, and be fine for some other people. They might not be able to handle it more. And, and I think it just in general, like, obviously you see, I've had people who come on my pack, who's been carnivore forever and they're, they seem to be thriving in their terms per se, um, would you agree? I mean, they're doing better than the grain eaters. I can tell you that. So yeah. if most of the other people around them are eating, you know, really, really a lot of high grain food, which is what the FDA recommends, I think a carnivore would easily outdo these people in terms of uh, average average health and resistance to stress. Yeah. And I have actually added in fruits uh, after I, after I've had some talks with Jay um, and I don't mind it. I enjoy it. My, my, my body can handle it. it. I mean, fruits are easily digestible, right? For the most part, ripe ones. Um, are there any fruits that people should maybe avoid? I would say the only two, the only two that I'm kind of uh, hesitant about, but I don't completely avoid them. I, don't, I just try to not to eat them on a daily basis are kiwis and bananas. And the reason is both have basically bananas are high on tryptophan and serotonin. Fortunately, most of serotonin is in the peel. Uh, the problem is when you peel the banana, even a very ripe one, you get these strings that remain on the banana. Not many people will like go through the a habit of like completely removing the actual, uh, you right. know, layer, the connective layer, right? Definitely don't eat the peel. I'm hoping nobody does, but <laughs> you know, just the little strings of that look stringy, that that's also a problem. And also kiwis have a decent amount of serotonin. Um, and even though medicine tells that it does not absorb when it's taken orally, several studies have already uh, refuted that. And the same claim was applied to GABA. So there are uh, supplements with GAB, gamma amino butyric acid on the market. And medicine kept saying, no, they're, they're useless. When you take it, it gets it gets basically destroyed by the gut. Why would GABA be destroyed, but not the other amino acids? So other amino acids, medicine is perfectly fine with saying that they absorb, but not GABA. Of course, when you take the GABA, it immediately sends the effects in your brain. You know it's absorbed because it has to exert those effects that way. But anyway, so basically these two, um, and let's see what else. I think uh, unripe fruits are, are best avoided because th that sourness that's in there, um, sometimes it's due to tartaric acid and citric acid. And especially the latter, if it's consumed in very large amounts, 
um, um, unbalanced because it's in the citrus fruits, obviously. That's the name it's coming from. But if it's consumed in other fruits where it's not balanced by the flavonoids that are present in citrus juices, citric acid can actually have pro-tumorigenic effect. Um, so I wouldn't, I would try to avoid it if possible. But look, don't be orthorexic. If a semi-ripe fruit and a decent steak is the only thing available, I would gorge up on it and not feel too guilty. Excellent. And um, we'll just finish up. And, and I know sugar's to blame for a lot of things. Like I've had Dr. Robert Lustig on. Obviously, the bioenergetic viewpoint is sugar's not to blame. Um, I mean, uh, multiple, I can quote human studies from here to the moon. Um, uh, two very good ones. One of them is older from the 1960s. showed that the addition of one pound of pure sugar daily to the diet of diabetics, of type 1 diabetics, drastically decreased their insulin requirements. So sugar did something that not only didn't kill these people, but somehow regenerated partially their pancreas, which is completely shot. Um, and second study uh, with infertile couples, where the, the 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 reason was male infertility was diagnosed. Um, a lot of these people overweight, they had type 2 diabetes, generally in poor health. That's Infertility is one of the first signs of poor health. So they were given an extra pound of candy, <laughs> A day and guess what this, yeah. yeah after three months 42 percent pregnancies so it's it's hard to argue with these facts and uh, really i think the issue is that we need to change our definition of health um so far the definition has always been you have to you have to be lean but multiple studies have demonstrated that there's a difference between people have who have always been lean and people who are only remaining lean due to due to chronic stress which they exert on themselves through dieting and exercise the latter is not healthy in fact there's this thing called the obesity paradox, which I'm sure you may have seen, like uh, there's a special Wikipedia page about it, showing that in a number of people, and I'm sure it's those that are actually normally, like not naturally lean, it's better for these people to actually be overweight and even obese because they fare better, even in acute diseases such as COVID-19 or cancer, chronic disease cancer or diabetes or, or surgery, anything that, that threatens the life of these people, if they're, if they're in their natural state when they have more energetic resources, even though they're in the form of fat, these people these people seem to be doing better. No, no arguing that the naturally lean person is probably the healthiest because if you're naturally lean, chances are you have very good metabolic rate uh, without counting calories, of course. I'm not saying it's just naturally people like you were in, when you were a child. You didn't think exactly what you would eat. You're going to count your calories, right? You were just naturally lean. If that's the case and this transfers to your adulthood, oh, more power to you. But if you gain weight, and if you have to go through these grueling exercises to actually stay in the lean side, the science shows that you will not be healthier than when you were actually overweight. Yeah, I see it. And, and, and you know what? I think that, um, you know, our society with Instagram and every, you know, everyone's got to have this perfect body. I think health is, is definitely more than just, uh, how you look, right? Like I talked to Danny about that, how you feel like, like you mentioned, like, let's just, maybe well, let's just finish the podcast with what markers should individuals, I know you mentioned cortisol to DHA, you mentioned mm -hmm. testosterone to DHA. Cortisol to testosterone cortisol in males. To testosterone. Yeah. Any, any other markers that you think individuals should, right off the bat should just get measured? Uh, progesterone to estradiol for females. Uh, that's a very good one. Uh, in blood, that, that ratio should be at least 200 to 1 in favor of the progesterone. And unfortunately, most of the women that have sent me results that invariably the reason they email me because they have health problems, their ratio is not only less than 200 to 1, sometimes it is even in favor of estrogen. Uh, and that's terrible. Basically, you, you, these people are in a state of estrogen dominance, and estrogen is a, is a, it was admitted by the NIH, was officially uh, put into the Hall of Fame, quote-unquote, 
as a known human carcinogen. It, it really gets me every single time I see a doctor on TV says, oh, a woman in menopause should be using estrogen. How, when you're now officially saying it's not probable, no human carcinogen. Um, so uh, what else? Uh, I think cholesterol is actually a very good gauge of, of your overall uh, metabolic health. Uh, cholesterol levels rise with age, and the reason is your metabolic rate declines. So the conversion of cholesterol into downstream hormones drastically declines. So cholesterol should be below, I think the 200 uh, limit is not bad. But you know, just because you lowered your cholesterol with statins does not mess does not mean you got healthier. Right. Now, if you didn't take statins but you changed your diet and cholesterol declined, then chances are you're 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 more on the right track. Vitamin D, very good predictor of overall health as well. Um, it seems to be there seems to be an optimal range between 30 and 50. Uh, anything above 50 seems to increase the, the overall mortality rate, non-specific, and anything below 30 just across the board, basically both mortality and morbidity. In fact, I think there was a study that showed that no type 2 diabetic person was ever found that, that they had uh, uh, opt uh, optimal vitamin D levels. They were either in the deficiency or insufficiency range. So between 30 and 50 for vitamin D. So we got yes. um, cholesterol, vitamin D, progesterone to um, estrogen ratio for women, um, cortisol to DHA, um, cortisol to testosterone, uh, carbon dioxide in blood is also a good measure because it's an inversely correlated to lactic acid. So usually they measure by carbonate, but it's a good surrogate. Um, okay. I think the range goes from something like 22 to 32. Bicarbonate. Um, bicarbonate, yeah. it's called on most blood tests. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or CO2. I mean, they, 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 I've seen it labeled differently, but it measures the same thing. Um, so basically you would want that to be over 25. Um, that means you're conversely that that your lactic acid is in the lower range of the of the normal. You can do a direct test test for lactic acid. Um, in fact, uh, if you if you do a test for pyruvate and lactate, the pyruvate to lactate ratio is a very good biomarker of your overall oxidative state, and it's very low in diabetics because they overproduce lactate. They undermetabolize the pyruvate, which is, which is coming from glucose, uh, and it's also this ratio is a very good determinant for pretty much any kind of chronic disease. Cancer patients heavily in favor of lactic acid. Alzheimer's patients, Parkinson's disease patients, in general, people in frailty, like whether acute or chronic disease, critically ill people, uh, burn victims, pyruvate to lactate, very good predictor of where you stand right now. Um, and then if your doctor is willing to do some more uh, cortisol to cortisol as another one, which is a steroid test, but it still represents the same thing because you can think of pyruvate as the oxidized version of lactate, which it is. So pyruvate to lactate gives you a ratio of oxidation towards reduction. And cortisol to cortisone, so cortisone is the alcohol, cortisone is the ketone. Again, another version, another way to measure it, but the same, these two ratios will probably be, if you measure them at the same time, they'll probably show the exact same value, even though they're completely different biomarkers. So you want things to be in favor of the oxidation. In other words, more towards cortisone, more towards pyruvate, right? Things like that. And then you can also measure the glutathione, also very, very famous test recently, but they only measure the reduced version of it, which is GSH. Um, you need to measure the oxidized version of it, known as GSHG. And the ratio of the G of the oxidized to the reduced will be a similar measure as to the pyruvate to lactate. I think pyruvate to lactate is the easiest test. Almost all, every lab has it. You can ask for it. The doctor probably not going to mind. They're not going to think you're crazy. <laughs> and um, you know they may even agree with what they're with what the with what the result says. Lots of good stuff, Georgie. Um, thank you for coming on. I, um, you. your supplement company, which I've checked out a few of your 
products. Um, what's the link for that? I'll put that in the oh, show notes. Uh, I, uh, so the company is called Idea Labs. Yeah, that's right. right? As okay. in labs for for ideas, right? So yeah. Idea Labs, and because we're in DC, the website is idealabsdc, one word, dot com. And is one of them, I know they have sort of different names that, um, what's what's the, what's the one, is there a vitamin E? Do you have a vitamin E? Yeah, Tocovit. Okay. Tocovit, because the name, the, the, the original name for vitamin E was Tocoferol. And Tocovit is basically the vitamin E, but spelled spelled different. You okay. gotta come up with a I don't know distinguishing name. Otherwise, you know, uh, hey, to say vitamin E is not. It makes you think. You're like, wow, well, yes. I think that's it. Okay, so Tocovit. Is there any other ones that like you're like, wow, well, that might not be a bad thing to add to the routine? I know, you know, we've talked. Oh, vitamin about- K, very important. Uh, not which many ones? people know, but vitamin K is uh, which is the quinone spelled with a K, because vitamin K is a quinone similar to coenzyme Q10. It's just a Naftoquinone, not a benzoquinone. Uh, Vitamin K is actually approved in Japan as a drug for preventing and treating osteoporosis. Recently, there have been calls to approve vitamin K based on animal studies as a hypogonadal treatment for males. It was shown that just giving vitamin K to even uh, elderly organisms like rats or rabbits uh, restored their testosterone production back to normal, back to youthful levels. And the way it did that is help import cholesterol directly into the mitochondria and metabolize it into the steroids. And we know that this process is becoming less effective with age, which is why cholesterol rises. Vitamin K was able to reverse that process. So no need to take steroids, no need to do testosterone replacement therapy. You may be able to do it with vitamins alone. Okay, so the quinone, is that something you take uh, every week? Yes, if I feel the need, I, there's basically a test you can do for a uh, carboxylated uh, osteocalcin. Um, it's not a very well-known test, but uh, I do this couple of months, and mine is usually in the above the uh, the upper limit of normal because I used to take hefty dose of vitamin K. So I take 45 milligrams once weekly. That that's my take. Um, and if you want to do the minimum, studies show that uh, that one milligram daily is basically the minimum that is required to uh, increase the carboxylation of osteocalcin, which is the process for taking calcium from your diet and your soft tissues and dumping it into the bones. That's what you want. You don't want calcium to be in the soft tissues, right? So one milligram daily was the minimum effective dosage that basically uh, kind of kick-started this process. And some studies show that you may not need more than five milligrams daily because beyond that, they couldn't see a statistically significant increase in that process. The approved dosage in Japan as a drug is 45 milligrams daily, but keep in mind these people are already very sick and very old. Um, and the same dosage, 45 milligrams daily, is now about to be approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States as a treatment for liver cancer. So, you know, the re- I'm mentioning just to give you a perspective of the high dosage. 45 milligrams daily, not needed unless you have very serious issues. I would say one to five daily is probably where you need to be at prophylactically. And at those levels, it becomes a you know, very affordable supplement. Yeah. And that's the quinone, the vitamin yeah. K. Yeah. Um, all right, Idea Labs DC, and I know you have a blog, HeyDude. HeyDude, yes, that's how I write online, HeyDude.me, M-E. Uh, and that feeds into Twitter, which is twitter.com slash HeyDude. And whatever I post on the blog goes to Twitter and it gets retweeted and or I get like, I don't know, torched by the people that dislike me. <laughs> well, this was fun. Maybe uh, I was just thinking, maybe we'll do a fun I know you have your podcast uh, with uh, you, you going with Danny Gener- generative and energy podcast, but maybe I'll I'll get you on Jay and Danny. Maybe we'll do something fun like awesome. that. That'd be fun. Awesome. Sounds sounds great.
All right. Well, thanks for coming on and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for inviting me. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.